the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, why the answer to Am I My Brother's Keeper is supposed to be yes. Being thankful for the invention of 16-page signatures, and we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. We have an interview with Mike Coopery, author of new science fiction novel Her Brother's Keeper. This is an old-fashioned space adventure, or space opera, if you will, with a, a merchant spaceship commander who has clawed her way to owning her own ship. She has to go and rescue her brother from a very nasty fix he's gotten himself into with a planetary warlord. There's some excellent characterization in this one as well. I particularly liked Mike's depiction of the mercenary Marine. Well, he's a law enforcement officer that gets hired on as a mercenary, and his daughter. It's great stuff. We'll talk with Mike about that in a moment. We also continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. Now the news. Happy Thanksgiving and ahoy to the holidays. Black Friday descends and the madness begins. But so does the cheer and goodwill and the buying of hardcover books. Speaking of which, we have new December climate thriller Stormfront by Robert Conroy. This is Bob Conroy's final solo novel out from Bain, since he did pass away last December. And it's fun one. After the storm of the century hits Sheridan, Michigan, Sheridan police officer Mike Stewart must capture a pair of killers on a spree in a town where everyone is trapped. Plus, the storm shows no signs of letting up. It is a fun one and a quick and exciting read. also want to remind you that if you are getting or giving an e-reader of some sort this Christmas, or Festivus, or whatever you celebrate, the Bain Free Library has over 50 free e-books ready for you to download and dive into. These include the start of our greatest series, like Honor Harrington with On Basilisk Station, Ring of Fire with 1632. There's lots and lots for free. And it's the good stuff, not the stuff that is free but the author ought to pay you to read. It's the opposite of that. If you do buy ebooks at the Bain ebook website, I would remind Kindle users that it is quite easy to have the books go to your Kindle, so don't eschew our fine sight on that account. I have pretty much gone over to my e-reader myself and audiobooks too, except for my stuff I have to read on paper for work. I've finessed the book signing thing too, somewhat. For instance, I um, have my first Kindle hanging on the wall in my office. It has signatures on the back of many of the writers that I admire. And the rule with the Kindle was that a writer's book had to have passed through that Kindle for me to get the signature. Anyway, that's one way to do it. Uh, the Bain Free Library can be found at bainebooks.com under Categories on the left sidebar. And Most Excellent Techno Thriller Stormfront by Robert Conroy is now available at booksellers everywhere. I want to welcome Mike Coopery to the podcast. Hi, Mike. Hello. I'm saying your last name correctly now that I know, right? Yes. And uh, you said it was Finnish? 
It is. It is the Finnish word for copper, actually. Cool. So uh, Mike Coopery grew up in Michigan. Uh, he is the co-author with Larry Correa of two books in the Dead Six Military Adventure series, Dead Six and Swords of Exodus. Mike was in the U.S. Army and Air Force and was most recently a staff sergeant in the Air Force where he was deployed in Afghanistan as an explosive ordnance disposal technician, which I think means you drove the robots and defused the bombs, right? Uh, more or less, yes. You've also served in the Middle East as a private military contractor. Well, what, what, what did you do as an EOD? What was that? Um, actually, when I separated from the Air Force last year, I was actually a tech sergeant in E6. Um, but you put out rank a little bit faster in the reserves. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, as an EOD tech, um, it's, you sized it up pretty well. You drive the robot and defuse bombs. Um, when I was deployed in Afghanistan, I was the newest member. I was the least experienced member of the team, so I was basically the robot driver. And the an EOD team works on the principle of the uh, team leader is the most experienced. Mm-hmm. And everyone, but despite that, everyone chips in. Everyone has their say, and the team leader listens to his team members, even if they are inexperienced. Um the lower guy is responsible for the typically responsible for driving the robot, maintaining it, maintaining the equipment in the truck, things like that. It is actually an extremely valuable learning experience, too. So there, there is that. When you um, it, did you diffuse anything? I mean, that you can tell us about, or it's not like um, diffusing like a we didn't find like a you know a bomb sticking out of the ground, like most people are thinking of right now. Um, in my area of operations in southern Afghanistan are the things we encounter were almost entirely improvised explosive devices. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with is a little bit more involved than piece of unexploded conventional ordnance because going into an IED, you don't know how it works. You can guess. Um, you can base your guess off what you've seen before, but until you fool down all possibilities, you are still guessing. And that's why they're particularly dangerous for the EOD tech, because you really don't know. When you're going down on the device, if you have to approach manually in the bomb suit, for example, that could detonate at any time. You don't know when, you don't know how it's initiated until you've done your full diagnostics on it and have ruled everything out. So... That was that's really where the EOD tech makes his money. That and even the piece of conventional ordnance, if it's in a location where you can't just blow it up in place. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's that's pretty intense, Mike. Well, now out from Bain at booksellers everywhere is Mike's uh, solo de- debut novel, which is uh, a really good science fiction adventure novel called Her Brother's Keeper. Mike, when the manuscript came in, I remember the title of it originally being something like Space Opera Challenge. Um, I have a feeling therein lies a tale. What was what was that title about? Um, it's probably not as uh, not as great as you're imagining. Um, I started getting the notion in my head in 2013 that I was going to try and make it on my own as a real author, and uh, I put together a outline and a some world building material and submitted it to Tony Weiskopf. Um, that was actually something like 25 pages of world-building material plus another 20-something page outline for the story. 
real rough at that point. I didn't have anything approaching a title. Um, she liked it. She sent me, gave, assigned me a bunch of homework to do. Got back to her, and then, as luck would have it, what was that homework? Sent me a <laughs> Reading stuff. I had to research. Oh yes, oh yes. I had to research everything from uh, the laws of primogeniture to uh, <laughs> different, uh, like the differences in. Uh, now, people in the frontier culture of people living in Australia versus living in the United States, when both places were considered frontier, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you're going to submit a book to Tony Weisskopf, she will give you your homework to do, and you'd best do it. Yeah. Yeah, she got on me uh, for a knife grip <laughs> not long ago for something I was writing. So I apparently did not have the person grip the knife in the correct manner. So, uh, I, think, I think the challenge, I think the challenge part of it came in, in that it was my attempt to prove that I could write a book on my own on time and to spec, as they say. So, yeah. Um, I made, I made it. I made it. Tell us a little bit about getting started with Larry, um, Korea, who you've written two books with. <laughs> I actually met, Larry in 2006, because we were both members of a firearms discussion board. At the time, it was called thehighroad.org. Uh, I've been on there in a long time, but, and I got the idea. I had actually written a couple pieces of just short fiction, just making it up as I go along on this before. Well, I wrote a little bit more involved story. It was told in the first person. It wasn't originally supposed to be particularly serious, but as it got on, as it moved on, the story got a little bit more intense. And this actually was a story that became Dead Six. Well, Larry had been reading it, and he liked it, and messaged me and asked me if he could, you know, jump in and create a new point of view character. And that's where the character of Lorenzo came from. So um, you, were, uh, the, 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 you were the deadly sniper character writer? Um, my, my, I was writing the character that eventually became Valentine. Right. Valentine. Yeah. Just, the book is essentially, um, alternating viewpoints between Lorenzo and Valentine, right? Yes. Yes. It's first person with two different point of view narrators and their stories intertwined throughout the book. Um, and bear, bear in mind, this is before Larry had submitted, the draft of Monster Hunter to anybody. He had, I don't even know if he'd finished working on it mm -hmm. at that point. So he was just a, he was just a wide eyed wannabe at the point. And I had never had any ideas of actually being a real writer per se, but we continued working on that and we became friends that way. And we were just making it up as we went along. We, we talked about it a little bit, but we didn't know how the story was going to end. And it turned out to be decent. Well, a couple of years later, after he had finally gotten Monster Hunter published and was having some success, he this is in 2008. He wanted he started bugging me to try to turn this into a novel, like a real novel to get published, and I refused at first. I was like, "There's no way. No one is going to publish this. It's just some crap we wrote on the internet. It's not gonna. It's not going to. It's not going to work. It's not going to cut it." So. It took some doing, but he eventually did convince me to start the process trying to turn into a novel. And it took a while because I did a lot of rewriting because I was still um, improving and learning as a writer. And uh, 
And it was kind of worked out that we did it that way because in that time, he also came up with the idea for Grimnoir, thanks partially to me, and he had gotten a Monster Hunter sequel and Grimnoir written and submitted. And so when we came around and uh, approached Tony about that six, he had already shown that he could sell, and that kind of piqued their interest in it a little bit. Well, the I mean, I don't want to talk about Dead Six completely, but um, it it it's fun. You throw in basically every conspiracy theory ever, uh, and as if it were real, with uh, with the know, Lu- yes. Illuminati and <laughs> it's a lot of fun. I mean, it's very it's very realistic the uh, the, the military action and and such, um, but it it has that sort of undercurrent of of um, I don't nudge nudge wink wink in a way. Would you agree with that or? Yeah, it's got some pretty significant differences in the, the state of the world, too. But just because when I we wrote it, I wanted to make it a little bit different. I wanted to put our unique spin on the classic, you know, because there's a lot of military thrillers from a lot of humongous name authors. Right. There. Well, there's. A, I mean, it just. Elegant. It's not necess- It's not meant to be a funny book, but there. It, it's. It's got a, a sense of humor underlying it. Well, we did that because, you know, military guys, and in the case of the story, ex-military guys mostly, do have sense of humor, senses of humor, even in the worst of times. And that's just that's just how you get through the day in a lot of instances. So there was that underlying humor. And that's something Larry and I joke about is that you know, Tom the Clancy book never made you laugh. Mm-hmm. There are points in that fiction that you laugh. Yeah. Well, I I really enjoy those two books. Um, the other one is called um, Swords of Exodus, which is the uh, sequel to Dead Six. But let's talk some more about um, her brother's keeper. So we began with ship captain. Her name is Catherine Blackwood. She's she's going to be our main character visiting her home planet of Avalon. She definitely has some issues with her dad. Can you sort of tell us who Catherine is and how she's gotten to be this? Kind of badass privateer operator of a spaceship. Um, Catherine is a member of is a member of a pretty high-ranking aristocratic family, aristocratic aristocratic family on the colony world of Avalon. The colony was founded about 800 years before the story starts. It was founded when the rest of and founded when the rest of inhabited space was in the grip of a horrible, horrible war. You know, it was just 10,000 desperate colonists trying to get away from the conflict. And as the conflict ground down, it actually destroyed most of interstellar civilization. So these people on this new world of Avalon were kind of cut off and on their own for a long, many, many, many years. And they became kind of, as a result, kind of conservative, you know, um, backward compared to what a lot of people think civilization could be, very stiff upper lip type because they endured some very dark times that way. Well, Catherine's family is part of the uh, ruling council. Um, the Basically, the elders of these families have like a quorum in which they govern the colony. Um, and her father, Augustus Blackwood, is the uh, basically the head of her family. And, and so Catherine wanted to be a spacer her entire life. That was her dream growing up. Now, the place she comes from um, does not have uh, modern sensibilities about the, uh, what we consider modern sensibilities about women in the workplace, especially in the military. 
um, place of women in abalone society tend to have more power behind the scenes inside the families, inside the complex social apparatuses, but not so much out in the private workforce and certainly not in the armed forces. So space was no place for a lady, as her Catherine's father used to like to say. But she persevered, and it wasn't illegal for her to pursue a career in space. It was just kind of frowned upon by polite society, but she did it anyway. And she went through the Space Academy, and I was actually on a equivalent of like a midshipman cruise as a junior officer in the Avalonian Defense Forces. Uh, the council kind of changed their mind when that happened about women serving in the military. It hadn't been outlawed, hadn't been, you know, um, yeah, outlawed, but they were like, this woman is making all these waves. She was becoming something of a celebrity. It was making him look bad, and so they said to try and nip it in the bud, and they basically torpedoed her career. And after that, women couldn't be officers in the defense forces anymore. So Catherine was heartbroken when she learned of her father's role of it. She basically stormed out in the huff 15 years before the story starts and uh, went to pursue her own life in the rest of inhabited space where they don't have those kind of uh, back, more backward social mores. She eventually got hired on as a crew member on the, her ship, the Andromeda, and through what she describes in the book as 15 years of hard work, worked her way up to an officer position and was able to take over for the, pre the previous captain once he decided to retire. She is, um, to say the least, she and her dad have some issues then as we begin the story. Um, so why is she coming back after he was such a jerk and basically torpedoed her military career. Why is she coming back to Avalon? Avalonian society places um, a lot of emphasis on the importance of family and the importance of being loyal to your, your family. That's the culture she grew up in. That's the environment she grew up in. That sort of ethos is what carried a struggling colony world through the, the dark years, centuries before, and it's ingrained in our society. So despite despite her fallout with her, her falling out with her father, her father sends her a message asking for help. And it's hard for a woman in Catherine just to say no to that. Even though she was mad at her father. She still had that sense of, you know, duty, loyalty to her family. Especially because when her father paraphrase the message when he contacts her as your family needs you, not just I need to talk to you. So that he really kind of hit at the old heartstrings there. Yeah. And later on, she finds out, especially when she finds out that her baby brother is in trouble, well, she didn't have a falling out with her baby brother. That's She practically raised him after her mother died. That is Cecil. Yes. Her, her brother. So tell us about what's going on there, um, I, because this is basically the setup for the story, and it, it's not really a spoiler, I don't think, to to tell us um, where is Cecil, what's happened to him, and why does she have to do anything about it? When Catherine speaks with her father, he tells her that after they have their argument, of course, because they both have hot tempers, and there's a lot of unsettled business between them, but she tells he tells her that her, as far as he knows, her brother Cecil is on a distant colony world called Zanzibar, 
And the question Catherine asks then is, what in God's name is he doing there? Zanzibar is on the pretty far outskirts of inhabited space. It is a failed colony world. It was once the, considered the crossroads of the frontier. It was a booming, modern, um, exciting place with the latest in technology, but that was more than 100 years before. What happened in the meantime was what is in the story called the Second Interstellar War, which was the humans, all basically all of humanity, against a very hostile alien race that was derogatory referred to as the maggots, because they kind of resemble maggots. Well, the war with the maggots was basically genocidal, and Zanzibar was one of the earliest planets they hit after making after hostility started. And they would just, um, you know, they just bombard it from space with particle weapons and smash the place and left. So the war was, lasted for many years after that. And in all that time, Zanzibar was wrecked and left on its own. And Zanzibar were, was not uh, a hospitable planet to begin with. The people that, I mean, they so, smashed humans that had settled on Zanzibar, right? That was who they attacked. It, it was a colony world. Yes. Yeah. Okay. There were there there is a native species on Zanzibar called the Zanzibari, and but they had been extinct for about four million years. Right. So where is what what's the political state of Zanzibar now? We've got the um, Zanzibar. Zanzibar is the equivalent of a failed state, like Somalia, or numerous places in uh, in in our world today. It does not have a functioning central government. Um, there is a couple of scattered settlements, including the, around the remains of what was once the capital city. There are maybe a million, million and a half total inhabitants scattered across this inhospitable world. And because of this, well, you, as typically happens when you have a failed state like that, you have warlords competing for power, you have crime, and you have people generally living in abject poverty and squalor. So it is not a great place to be. Yeah. Well, we'll come back to that. Um, the, the Catherine needs to recruit some, uh, basically some Marine help. Um, if, uh, if things go, it, she, her first task is maybe to just get her brother by bribery. Right. But but if that goes bad, she needs she needs some um, some muscle. Um, and therein lies the uh, my favorite character in the book. I really liked um, the way you created him, uh, Marcus um, Winchester. Who is he? What's he done? What is his job? I mean, you really made him a human law enforcement guy that um, I really identified with. Can you tell us about a, a bit about Marcus? Um, Marcus is. He comes from a background of military special operations, the equivalent of our modern Army Special Forces, roughly. Um, he served in the military of an interstellar polity called the Concordiant, which is the closest thing you're going to find to, like, the Federation in the setting. It's one of – there aren't a whole lot of interstellar political entities just because governing across those kind of distances with the time delays is a challenge. So the Concordia is really more of a defense and trade union than a 
um, proper government as we think of it. But they do have a very, they're the closest thing there is to a superpower, and they have a large military, and Marcus comes from that background. Well, he separated from the military after multiple deployments in um, some pretty ugly little dirt-side wars. And it's referenced several times a place called Mildenhall, which was apparently, a, as the reader learns, a, just a very nasty campaign. And uh, so he uses a discharge bonus and emigrates to a fairly new, fairly rural colony world called New Austin. Uh, new Austin likes to recruit people, former military guys, to come live out there. It's a fairly hospitable planet. Not a whole lot of native life, but the terraform zone is big. Lots of open land. Um, you know, fresh air, blue skies. Gets you away from the big city because the whole planet only has about 4 million people on it. So Marcus settles out there and takes up a job as a law enforcement officer. He's a colonial marshal. Um, the colony is so, has such low population density that they have marshals who are charged with, you know, enforcing the law and apprehending fugitives stationed throughout it. And they're pretty much on their own unless they require backup from the, from the city, from the capital. So Marcus has been making a living doing that for the last few years. His wife is a miner and a geologist by trade, and she actually makes, makes the bulk of the money in the family because they need the money because they're paying down the big loans they took out to move across interstellar space and buy the land and buy everything they need to set up his homestead. They And the, they have a daughter as well. Yes, and who has who has ambitions of her own? I just, I mean, the the way you set up that family is is, is really nice. You just are rooting for all of them. Annie, um, Annie's rather taken with Catherine when she meets her. She is Annie, like Catherine. She was young, has dreams of being a spacer. Um, it's she's not old enough. She's sixteen when the story starts. And her mom is quite insistent that she just stay on her home world and go to school after she um, go to university, basically. Um, going to an actual brick-and-mortar university is pretty prestigious, and they're saving up money for it. Just they want her to have a good education and a good life. And frankly, her parents think her fascination with being a spacer is kind of a phase because the life of a spacer is not easy. It's very much equivalent to being a sailor in the age of exploration. You're gone a lot, months to years at a time. Um, the ships are cramped and dangerous without a lot of amenities. There's nothing equivalent to like artificial gravity on most ships. So it's not really a... They, they got the idea in their head that uh, as soon as she actually sees it being a space or is like, and she'll just kind of grow out of it. So they're not too concerned with her ambitions to run off outer space. But it's actually deeper than that for her. She really wants it. And when she meets Catherine, she is just completely enamored with her because this is where she wants to be. There is this woman who's to her is a larger than life figure who owns her own ship. Yeah. She just lives the most the freest life you possibly can, traveling wherever she wants. Yeah, I mean you gave us a little idea of the technological state of the world. What what are the weapons like, for instance? Most of the weapons are fairly conventional firearms. They use different kinds of propellant compared to conventional gunpowders, and they uh, the cartridge cases are either weapons are either caseless, meaning they 
is just a uh, projectile embedded in a little brick of propellant, or the cases are plastic. So they're a little bit more high-tech. They have more advanced optics, and they're and that they're fairly conventional just because projectile weapons are cheap and easy, and they'll pr probably pretty much always will be. There are also more advanced things. Lasers are very common, even as handheld weapons, and there are um, things like rail guns and more exotic energy weapons, but they are expensive and more maintenance-intensive and require huge batteries and such. So uh, conventional firearms are still pretty prevalent. Marcus is a, is a pretty good draw as well. <laughs> There's a... Great. There's a great fight scene in there. So on Zanzibar, we have Cecil Blackwood, uh, Catherine's brother, and uh, the brother of the title, um, and his compatriot, Zach and, and Anna. What were they doing on Zanzibar, and what has happened to them? Um, as we learn in the book, this may be a little bit of a spoiler alert here, so we learn that Cecil is on a treasure hunt. Um, Zanzibar was inhabited four million years ago, and the species had all but vanished, the native Zanzibari. Well, artifacts from extinct species are incredibly valuable on the open market. They are priceless because they're so very rare, especially from a long-dead civilization on a planet that was suffered a cataclysm like Zanzibar did. So, Tisa was there thinking he's going to make some money looking for these artifacts. He hires Zach because Zach is a historian who actually wrote a, he wrote a dissertation basically on Zanzibar and its history. And Cecil met him this way when he was preparing for his expedition and hired him. Anna Kay is Zach's partner. And uh, he, is, he basically, he, he, he's the, the money guy, the financier of this exposition, and Zach and Anna are supposed to do all the research and all the work. And once they actually get to Zanzibar, you know, Cecil is an aristocrat from a wealthy family on a modern, civilized world. He's in way over his head when he gets there, and it isn't too long before he gets in trouble. And they run smack into uh, Aristotle Lang, who is not a nice man. Tesla, he's a he's our villain. He's one of those warlords you were talking about, right? Aristotle Lang is rapidly becoming the only remaining warlord on Zanzibar. He is ambitious. He's smart. And he's ruthless. And he's been, over the course of years, eliminating his competition. Well, a couple of rich off-worlders land in the, on the world's one remaining functional, semi-functional spaceport and start asking questions about alien artifacts. And it wasn't too long before he rolled them up. He captures Cecil and, said, and basically puts him to work. He's going to find the artifacts, but now he's going to find the artifacts for Aristotle Lang. Because, again, they're extremely valuable. And Aristotle Lang wants that money to buy weapons from the open market. He can hire ships that come through Zanzibar once in a while. He can pay them to bring him weapons, better weapons than he can get locally. And he can overrun the one remaining city on there and basically become the ruler of the whole planet. This is his, this is part of basically his plan. Um, and he is willing to do just about anything to get there. Um, Aristotle Lang grew up on Zanzibar. It's a tough, Way to live. It's. I mean, their survival is an everyday struggle there. The planet is has no life at this point. It's a thin atmosphere. They get water mainly by mining ice in the higher latitudes, and there is just poverty and crime and violence. 
and life tends to be short and brutal. But Aristotle Lang grew up and survived all that and made it to the top of the heap. So he's not he's not like a vicious psychopath, but he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to get what he wants. Yeah, that includes killing people. So the oh yes, the setup that we have the, the I mean the the whole uh, instigation for the story is that Catherine is coming to try to get her brother away from this dude. So back to the Andromeda, Catherine's. Uh, this is her ship. There's a lot of space between Avalon and Zanzibar they have to cross. Can you sort of, uh, you started a little bit with Concordia. Can you lay out the political situation in the galaxy at the moment? Humanity has been um, colonizing space at this point for well over a thousand years. Um, there have been some pretty major setbacks along the way, though. Um, so the first setback was what is called the first interstellar war, which happened very like 800 years before the start of the story. And this was an apocalyptic conflict in which both sides, um, the Federation on one side and the, what's called the post-humanist movement on the other, basically annihilated each other. So many colonies were destroyed because there was just an uninhibited campaign of, of mass destruction. So much space infrastructure was destroyed that interstellar travel became all but impossible for a very long time. And interstellar society basically collapsed for several hundred years. Well, this is basically a dark age. Um, colonies slid backward technologically. Um, some colonies that weren't fully sustainable just died out. They lost contact with each other. Well, eventually, humanity recovered. And the end of this period of chaos is typically recognized when the Interstellar Concordia was founded. And after that, it had been many, many years of peace and outward expansion colonization. Well, there was another setback when they encountered the Magus and had another destructive war. But humanity is scattered all over a good chunk of the galaxy. Um, the colonies tend to be rem are often remote. Um, space travel is not quick. There is no interstellar communication except what is carried by ship. So colonies tend to be pretty isolated. Um, and most of them, the interstellar Concordia is big, but most of the colonies, or at least maybe a plurality, if not a majority, are independent and self-sustaining just by necessity. So um, to get anywhere, and you can fly basically wherever you want because there are naturally occurring um, transit points that connect stars. And if you just have a transit-capable ship, you just fly up to the transit point, turn on your faster-than-light widget, and in a flash, you're in the next system. But you still need fuel and reaction mass to carry your ship across the gulf of space between transit points. You need supplies for your crew. And a ship like the Andromeda isn't big enough to make that kind of journey without stops. So they're having, they have to travel where they're going to go, navigating this uh, route that allows them to resupply so they can actually arrive at their destination. And they have to go through several different uh, colonies on the fringes of, of inhabited space along the way. This sounds like a uh, somewhat of an age of sail analogy. How would the, how would hypothetically, if there were spaceship battles in the book, um, how would spaceships fight? 
in this world. First of all, sir, I'm shocked at your insinuation there would be a spaceship battle in a band novel. Uh-huh. But uh, um, the biggest thing that I, I actually did quite a bit of research on how this could work. I picked, I decided how I wanted my ships to be. I wanted my ships largely, not all of them, but largely to be kind of a throwback to the, the Heinlein-esque rocket ship, right? That was the hook I decided to try to make this stand out on the back. Well, I did a lot of research on what, um, on the realities of nuts and, of a spaceship and what it would entail. And it turns out, um, the big thing is there's no stealth in space. There's no hiding. Um, for example, you may have heard in the news and they had this missile launch off the coast of California. Half the state of California saw it and freaked out because they thought a nuclear war was starting. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in Arizona when that happened, and I could see the missile. I could see the exhaust signature over the mountains. Um, when a ship lights up its drive, there is no hiding it in space. So when a ship comes into a system, the first thing, they can see every other ship because they have these monstrous fusion rocket drives. They're capable of you know, orders of magnitude more power than anything we have now. And they can accelerate for hours at a time at one or more Gs. So there's, there's no hiding that signature. So everybody knows where everybody else is. Um, the weapons are lasers, um, rail guns, projectile weapons, and missiles, basically. Space battles happen if, generally, if both sides agree to have a battle. Because you can't sneak up on anybody, for the most part. So... Um, if two ships do decide to engage, they just there's not a lot of room to maneuver. I mean, there's plenty of room to maneuver in space. Maneuvering doesn't really get you anything. It just wastes fuel. So they fly at each other. They will try to conduct some maneuvers to, as best as they can, dodge incoming unguided projectiles. You can't dodge lasers, obviously. And guided missiles are a little bit harder to dodge. They use electronic warfare on each other. They will try to shoot down each other's incoming weapons. That's a big part of the combat is trying to shoot down the other guy's missiles and such before they hit you. And they'll even use tricks like turning, they'll slew the ship over and turn the exhaust plume outward to the incoming to destroy the missile before it hits them and things like that. But once they get in close, it's just a, typically they just pass each other in a flash, tearing into each other with weapons, and whoever gets a critical hit wins. Um, space battles tend to be once they're actually getting closer like that in relative terms and relatively close in terms of space and get into what they call knife fight range like that, it tends to be short and brutal. What is ground planetary warfare like? I imagine uh, you talked about doing all this research um, that Tony assigned you. I imagine that you must have brought some of your military uh, background into that as well. I wanted ground combat to be something that the reader could identify with. And I also wanted to be able to use my own experience from being in Afghanistan and just having a military background. I've had plenty of friends and compatriots that have been deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan and all kinds of other places that have, I know people that have seen some pretty intense combat. So I wanted to be able to use that. So with the technology level of the setting, most ground warfare isn't unrecognizable to what we have today. It is more high tech. Um, They have much more use of, heavy use of, like, combat robots, and there's power armor, and there are energy weapons and all kinds of, you know, horrific smart weapons of different kinds. But 
for this little mercenary expedition to a far-flung planet, they don't have a lot of that fancy gear. So they just have, you know, some guys with some training that are good with weapons and are smart and they're well-paid. And they just have basic equipment. They do have some heavier weapons. They do have, another little spoiler alert here, they do unbox a pretty heavy set of power armor that Catherine was able to buy for them. But uh, for the most part, it's just guys on the ground, weapons in their hands, ready to just outmaneuver and outsmart the enemy. The, but you do bring it to life, and, and Marcus is a, is a great viewpoint character to see this through. What are you working on at the moment? At the moment, my current, my current project is the third book in the Dead Six trilogy. We have completed more or less our initial rough draft, and I'm going over it again, um, lengthening it, adding scenes, adding footnotes. And then I'm going to kick it back to Larry, and he's going to go over it, and he'll kick it back to me and have this long process until it's done. Um, a collaboration is actually a huge pain in the ass. So, <laughs> um, how do you, how do you, uh, I mean, like technically, how do you, do you, you email a bunch with Larry, or you, you talk on the phone? Do you not talk to each other at all until you're done with your chapters? We have contact, uh, phone, email, we, um, have had sat down in his living room and brainstormed. We've, uh, when we finished Dead Six, we printed out the draft and read it, the whole thing, out loud. Just to see if there were any lines, any dialogue that sounded dumb or any lines that sounded weird. Um, so we'll just communicate back and forth. The way we do it, typically, he's very, very busy mm -hmm. being Mr. Hotshot writer now. So. Yeah, he just came off of a book tour for his uh, Son of the Black Sword. I wouldn't. I went, I went and crashed his book signing in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, because he'd been going around signing my books and thought he was so funny. So I went and signed some of his. But, uh, in crayon. But, um, so I've been working on it, and like I said, when I finish this draft, I'm going to kick it back over to him, and he'll stop playing um, World of Tanks long enough to go over it and then kick it back to me. And then I'll stop playing Fallout long enough to do the same and we just go back and forth like that until it's finished and then we send it to you guys do you have a working title for it yet no we for the longest time we've been calling it project blue because that is the eponymous project that they're trying to unveil throughout the book mm -hmm. alluded to since the, since dead six but that title isn't going to work so i have floated in the but yeah, on this, I floated the title Invisible War to Tony. She liked it. We don't have anything solid yet. So typically, um, not always, but typically we'll let, um, you know, you guys, Ben, you guys pick the title. Yeah. What you think sounds best, what you think will sell. Um, that's how I got the title for her brother's keeper. Yeah. Too. So I'm not going to argue with you experienced smart marketing guys and what you think will move books. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure that, uh, We'll all arrive at a title in good in the fullness of time, but um, I'm really looking forward to that. I, I really like that um, that that uh, series. It's not science fiction, but it's got a it's got a. If you like stuff like Larry's Grimnor Chronicles, um, I, I think that um, it's it's got some of that feel to it as well. The the Dead Six uh, series does. After that, um, what's on the table for you? I have. Um recently been contracted for a sequel to Her Brother's Keeper. 
Um, the working title right now is called Heirs of Ithaca, and we will revisit Captain Blackwood and the crew of the Andromeda on their next big adventure. As so far, it's looking like my sales, the book came out November 4th, looks like my sales have been decent. Mm -hmm. um, Larry's book bomb, of course, was a humongous help. Um, copies are moving, the reviews are generally positive. I'm relieved that my first solo effort hasn't been a total disaster. <laughs> um, you have no idea how much I'm relieved. Those who like this sort of thing, not, I mean, it's just, it's just really, really pithy space opera stuff. Um, military space opera. If you like it, you've got, you've got the bells and whistles going on there. And the characterization is excellent. So onward with the series. Do we have a title for the series yet? <laughs> We're going to have to come up with one with this um, novel. You better start thinking about it. <laughs> I believe that was Tales from the Privateer Andromeda was floated mm. for the series. So that might be the direction we go in with that. Well, the book we're talking about now is uh, Her Brother's Keeper by Mike Coopery. It's now out at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Mike, thank you very much for being with us. Hey, thank you very much for having me on. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of John Ringo's Under a Graveyard Sky. This portion of Under a Graveyard Sky is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now here is another segment of John Ringo's novel of zombie infestation and the heroic humans who fight back, determined to pull the world from disaster and humanity itself from the brink of annihilation. It's all taking place under a graveyard sky. Chris Phillips, Chris said, holding out his hand. Thank you. Stave Smith, Steve said, taking his hand and pulling him on board. Are you the last off? Steve asked. Last off, Chris said. Pulled the EPIRB as you requested. We're going to be tired as hell, Steve said, looking at the group on the aft deck. There had been seven survivors from the lifeboat, and we're going to have to be careful with rations. You're the senior officer? As such, Chris said, I was a chef on board the Voyage Under Stars. Damn, Steve said. No offense, but I was hoping for an engineer or ship's officer. They scarpered long before, Chris said. Aussie? Got it in one, Steve said. Brit? Former RN, Chris said. Para, Steve said. Okay, as we announced, we need to do a saltwater washdown. We got some slops from the boats we've cleared, and we'll try to find clothes for everyone. Miles are forward. We're a bit past that, Chris said. We'll just wash down here. Ah, uh, Steve said. Sir, one of the ladies said. Captain, first, again, thank you. Second, we've been on that tiny little boat for two months. There is absolutely nothing we don't know about each other, including what we look like without clothes. Well then, Steve said, shrugging. We're already rigged for washdown. You'll probably get tired of us saying thank you, Paula Handley said, 
sipping tomato soup. Not only had they included it as a major store item, they'd found more on the toy and the other boat they'd cleared. Paula was the lady who had pointed out that group washing was not going to be an issue. In her late 20s, with fine, reddish-blonde hair, she looked as if she might once have been plump. Two months under starvation conditions had changed that. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Where the hell is the Coast Guard? One of the men asked, truculently. Gone, Faith said. She was looking nervous with all the people on the boat and had kept her sidearm. She was clearly trying not to tap it. No short wave from any governmental agency. The few ham radio operators on land say that they can't move outside of their compounds and spend a lot of time hiding, even then. There are some towns that survived in the high Arctic, but they're back to basically living like Indians. Show a light, have a gen, and you get hit by zombies, Steve said. I'm wondering about my brother. He had a professional fallback point, but I just hope it was strong enough. Everything can't be gone, the man said. That's not true. Mr. Sorry, name, Steve said calmly. Isham, the man said. Jack Isham. Mr. Isham, I can't prove to you that it's gone, Steve said. But there is a shortwave receiver. I can pull up the frequencies of the few hams that are out there, if they're broadcasting. If they're not gone as well, and you can then check the beeb, femur, what have you. They are gone. Check for yourself. Well, where are we going to go then? Paula asked, looking around. There's not enough room on here for us to stay forever. I appreciate the hospitality, but... Other boats, Steve said. There are more. Some of them larger. For the time, we'll need to be a floating community, as it were. I want to get my feet on dry land, one of the women said. She was probably a well-preserved 60 and had the remains of a strong dye job. Her natural hair color was now clearly gray. I'd say I'd be happy to drop you off on some nearby landfall, Steve said, shrugging, where you can compete for resources with the zombies. But we are still in clearance mode. We are clearly going to have to find more boats. But that is the point. There are other people out there who need to be rescued as much as you did. Once we find another boat, it will go to people who want to continue the rescue. If we find an excess, I'll be glad to turn some over to people who don't support rescuing others. They can go do whatever they like. But in the meantime, there are people to be saved. We're currently on our way to another distress call. Wherever a Tardakian baby cries out, a young man said, grinning. Oh, please, Pat, Paula said despairingly. Not that again. Well, it's what he's saying. Patrick Lobdell said. I'm sorry, Steve said. As Paula said, we've been in each other's pockets for two months, Chris said, dryly. Pat is an SF movie nerd par excellence. I can quote over 30 movies, Pat said, verbatim. And he has repeatedly demonstrated, Chris said. If I recall correctly, that was a quote from Galaxy Quest, one of his favorites. Whenever a Tardakian baby cries out, Patrick said, thrusting his fist in the air. Wherever a distress signal sounds among the stars, we'll be there. This fine ship, this fine crew, 
Paula said, shaking her head. Never give up, the entire group chorused, tonelessly. Never surrender. Okay, Steve said, putting his hand over his mouth to contain the chuckle. I can see that it's a bit of a sore point. And Jack, Paula said dangerously, don't get started on football scores. If you'll stop talking about sewing, Jack snapped. And we're going to go back to the original discussion, Chris said firmly, in which Mr. Smith was outlining his plan to clear. How much? You want to see the EPIRB map for the North Atlantic, Steve said. There are over 2,000 distress beacons. About 10% are harder ground, and, well, they're screwed. One boat of people cannot clear 2,000 lifeboats, Isham said. When we find a functional boat, Steve said, as previously noted, it goes to someone with something resembling experience and agreement to keep searching, and so on and so forth. I'd guess Mr. Phillips. I'm a cook, not a ship's officer, Chris protested. Ever conned a boat? Steve asked. Something this size? Well, bigger, actually, Chris said. But, Sophia, what did you driven before you started conning the mile? Steve asked. My bike? Sophia said from the helm. You might remember I'm still 15, da. 15? Paula said. Fife's 13, Steve said, gesturing to the girl lurking in the corner and she plowed the road out of Washington Square. Excuse me, Isham said. Washington Square Park? We are four of the ten survivors from the last concert in New York City, Faith said, which we got out of by blowing away so many zombies you could follow our path by the bodies. So don't get me started on how hard it's going to be to clear a bunch of boats. Boats are easy. Hey, Patrick, is it? Bet you played all sorts of video games. Want to fight some real zombies? Uh, Patrick said nervously. Faith, Steve said. No, da, Faith said angrily. What Tina said. They wanted to be rescued. I bet you were praying to God every day that somebody could come to rescue you. And now you want to, what, curl up and cry? While there are people out there that need you? Screw you. She turned and stalked out of the saloon, slamming the door behind her. Bloody hell, Chris said. Fife is a little passionate, Steve said in apology. We don't expect any of you to go charging aboard zombie-infested freighters anytime soon. You need to get your strength back, but you need to start thinking about how you can help, and if you want to. If you don't, well, we'll find something to do with you eventually. For now... Just rest up. Duh, this is another sport fisher, Sophia called. About five minutes. If you'll pardon me, Steve said, standing up. It probably is a derelict, but there may be some supplies. As Sophia blasted her horn, a zombie stumbled out onto the aft deck of the yacht. Female. She was in surprisingly good health. I guess we'd better rig up. Faith said, drawing her sidearm. She fired one-handed and hit the zombie in the upper chest. The woman had been at the rail, clawing in the direction of the toy, 
and flipped forward into the water. That made things easy. Don't fall in, Steve said, pointing at the water. A fin cut through the water, and the shark rolled over and tore into the still-thrashing zombie. Guess not, Faith said, holstering her pistol. I think I just figured out why you'd want a gun that shoots underwater. The 50-foot sport fisher, christened Real Fast, had two more zombies, one dead of apparent starvation, four other dead bodies, including two children, all well-gnawed, and no survivors. The dead zombie had been in the engine room, and before succumbing to starvation, had well and truly trashed it. The engines would probably still work, but every other system was damaged, beyond repair from their point of view. What it did have was stores. The group had stocked up heavily and apparently been hit by the plague shortly after setting to sea. The reason the female zombie was in such good shape was that a large amount of the stores had been freeze-dried rations, ubiquitously called Mountain House, although most of these were a different brand. Many of the boxes were in the saloon and open. The zombie had figured out how to rip them open, with her teeth from the look, and had had plenty of supplies for the voyage. Where'd she get water? Faith asked, after they'd pieced it together. Rain? Steve said. The self-bailer was stuck. There's a puddle. You'd think she'd get sick, Faith said, pointing to the water. It was mixed liberally with fecal matter. Surprising what people can survive, Steve said. They're still homo sapiens, after all, and we're a resilient species. That was another segment in our complete audiobook serialization of Under a Graveyard Sky by John Ringo. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a giant rack of lightly used French legionnaire nom de guerres for every occasion. And a tribunal verdict of guilty. Of writing a fun book with cool spaceships. To Mike Coopery, author of Her Brother's Keeper. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Radio Hour is brought to you by Bain Books Audio Drama, presenting dramatized audio plays of the best science fiction and fantasy with a professional cast and cinema quality soundtracks. Now available, Eric Flint's Islands, based on the novella by Eric Flint. Also available, Larry Correa's Detroit Christmas, based on the novella by Larry Correa, set in the world of the Grim Noir Chronicles at BaneEbooks.com. Just put Islands and Detroit Christmas in the search bar and enter a world of listening pleasure. Bane Books Audio Drama. (laughs) 